you end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the extract universe. that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist think of objects not as single things but has been made up of many constituents. Bill Nye made me hate science. Well, you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. Hey, guys, snatch your reaction. It is the last time for at least a little while you're going to be listening to that introduction. Actually, you know what? You could just go to the podcast, to be fair. Yeah, just start from the beginning and listen all the way back through the catalogue. I mean, there's enough actually, episodes. Maybe not the very beginning. I feel like <laughs> maybe you could skip a couple in the like in the start there and go straight to the middle. It's like it's like a pilot TV show. Like it got better towards <laughs> the middle and then uh Awesome towards you. No, I don't know. Um, you're in that reaction. We're here for one last week. We've got Izzy in the studio, as you can hear. Hi. Laughing in the background, as always. We have Nadia. Hello. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe this is it. I what know. are we going to do? We'll just have to go on with our very sad laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> well, what are we going to do without you guys, audience, listening to us every week, enjoying our content? This is this is the highlight of our uh, our everything. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice thing to do on a Sunday morning. It is. It is. It's a nice thing to listen to on a Tuesday evening. Yeah. Mm. Or listen to it any time on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm just getting the podcast in here tonight, guys. <laughs> um, so, we have a guest in the studio as well. It is Dr. Frank Sainsbury from the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology. Thank you so much for coming in. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here for the last show. I oh. know. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> could you tell us like a quick rundown of what you do? Yeah, um, I haven't really been practicing practicing this, but I should have. Um, I work on the shells of viruses, basically. So trying to use the shell that makes up the structure of a virus um, for biomedical or other nanotechnology type applications. Um, so we study what makes the viruses come together and, and the shapes that they form. And um, we make them empty, right? So the inside of the virus is the infectious component. So that's the ge- genome of the virus, either RNA or DNA. I don't have to explain what that no. is. No. no. We're good. We're good. Um, and that's encapsulated usually within a protein coat. Um, and the viruses that I study don't have on top of that anything else. So it's just this protein coat. Um, most of the most well-known viruses are like that. They just have this protein coat. And among them, a lot of them are kind of spherical. And not exactly spherical. They're actually made of icosahedrons. Oh. Yeah, which are just one of the... They're actually one of the regular platonic solids um, the, described by Plato. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, and, uh, cool. For people playing at home, platonic shapes, platonic solids, they're... Um, you know those regular, like a... Like a, like a cube is a platonic mm-hmm. solid. It's a platonic. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Structure. It's a it's a shape, but it's a solid. Uh, there's a, a polyhedron type t- t- name I'm looking for, which is like the a platonic ideal of a square solid is a cube. Can't help you. And the platonic <laughs> ideal of like a tri of a of a pyramid is the like a triangular pyramid with a triangular base. That's right. Sides. That's a, a tetrahedron. A, yeah. That's a platonic solid as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we'll, maybe, we'll come back to that. <laughs> maybe too much detail, but <laughs> it's what I will be looking at in the near future is why all of those sort of round viruses have that geometric structure to them. That's cool. And, mm. and we'll get into this a bit later, but I'm just teased to the audience. I'm going to assume it's, uh, there's a lot of physical constraints that uh, sort of define that these as a really optimal shapes. 
Yeah, there are some theories as to why that is. Actually, when it comes to these uh, 3D shapes, the icosahedron has the most internal volume for a given edge length. And so it's a way of minimi or maximizing the internal volume that can hold the genome for a given size of protein that forms the shell. There we go. Yeah. As we know, evolution deteriorates towards optimal efficiency. We will talk so much more about this <laughs> yes. after a couple of songs. But um, Nadia, what are you talking about? Today, I'm going to be talking about a couple of women in space. Oh, see, I'm actually doing space too. I've, I've decided I'm going to do a space one as well. Yeah, see, <laughs> after last week's episode with Jake, I've been on a bit of a space binge. So I thought it was only appropriate. I love it. And Izzy? I will be talking about a, well, a sort of human hybrid, uh, human-chicken embryo hybrid. Because what is it natural reaction if we don't get, like, weird hybrids of animals? Yeah, of course. I mean... Uh, I was going to make it some sort of joke about Dolly the sheep or something, but I can't be bothered right now. <laughs> <laughs> just if fill just that in for yourself. Audience, yourselves. please it's not imagine. even a hybrid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why. I, okay, that's not a hybrid. You screwed up, Izzy. <laughs> yeah, let's get out of here. And if we're lucky towards the end of the show, uh, you're running out of us for a little while, but you're also running out of some very important natural resources, and we'll talk about them a little bit. Okay, I love it. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how we go. Yeah. God, that's such a weird topic. Mm. Um, and then, so um, because of this, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Juno and how you take a photo on Jupiter and bring it back because I'm doing a report for that at the moment for um, for Science Alert. And I was like, no, you know what? You guys get to hear it first. I'm really excited <laughs> about it. So we get to talk about it. Are um, you saying we get an exclusive scoop? You, mm. exclusive I love scoop. exclusive scoops. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital. And we are here for the last natural reaction ever i'm gonna keep saying it it's gonna be all episode it's just gonna be me being like oh that's it guys also yeah dollar bill murray's haven't heard them in a while really good to hear them again top notch i actually thought they were like a joke band because of the name and then i listened to them and i was like oh my god they're amazing yeah but australia has a long story tradition of having joke bands that sound like having sorry names that sound almost like joke bands but are actually awesome yeah yeah nadia tell me about astronauts i mean women women astronauts lady astronauts they're all astronauts at the end well i'm gonna be talking astro ladies except for the ones that were cosmonauts (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) anyway by the way i really want to say this cosmonaut makes more sense than astronaut astro means star we don't send people to stars because that'd be silly we haven't yet if we start sending people towards stars just in a suit, <laughs> we might have, we might have some problems. Just a little bit. I don't think the US is ever going to agree to call everybody a cosmonaut. Yeah, though. yeah that's never happening. No, not with the history. Um, but yeah, so today I want to do one last segment talking about some of the fearless females that face the final frontiers of space. That was uh, some good alliteration there. Oh, love me some alliteration. <laughs> um, so I've been watching a few documentaries on, in particular, the Challenger and the Columbia space shuttle disasters. Again, Aww. been on a bit of a... Morbid. Yeah, I, I enjoy that side of things. <laughs> um, but I, I've been really interested in just a bit about the background and everything. So in terms of the space shuttle disasters, Columbia um, was one of the most recent ones. It happened in 2003 on Columbia's 28th mission, and as it was re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, a piece of foam insulation that initially broke off and struck one of the wings during like the takeoff of the orbiter actually caused it to disintegrate, killing all seven crew members upon re-entry. So pretty brutal. And one of the one of the notable crew members was Kalpana Chalwa, who was an aerospace engineer and the first woman of Indian origin in space. Mm, wow. um, it's terrible. Yeah, remembered terrible. because. She died. 
Well, of course, but we remember her for other things. And um, in terms of the Challenger space shuttle disaster, this one is a lot more uh, well-remembered because it was publicly televised. And it was full of teachers, right? A teacher. Yeah. Um, And basically, so in 1986, the space shuttle Challenger was going back into its space for its 10th flight. And just as part of one of NASA's shuttle orbiter missions, and as it was taking off, one of the rocket booster tanks exploded from a faulty O-ring due to like really cold weather. And the rocket broke apart 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven members, including one of the first civilian astronauts, uh, Krista McAuliffe, who would have also been the first teacher in space. And she was planning on giving two lessons from space. Wow. So very, very tragic. Um, And one of the women who served on the investigation board for both space shuttle disasters and who had actually traveled on the Challenger space shuttle twice was Sally Ride. Ah, my favorite astronaut. Yes, she was the first woman to, American woman, to have flown in space and the third woman overall in space. Sally was an accomplished physicist and she was a beloved science educator. I think she was the first, well, I mean, she didn't come out till after, um, but she was also the first LGBT um, American, oh, just person in space, I think. Yeah, so she was the first um, LGBT uh, astronaut in space. And basically, she believed it was important to encourage students to embrace and study science. Her love of science was actually fostered by her parents, who encouraged her to explore. She was also quite athletic, and she had a brief stint as a professional tennis player. Oh. Um, She studied at Stanford University. She got her master's degree in science and then a doctorate in physics in 1978. And that was the same year that she completed her PhD. She applied to NASA. And out of 8,000 applicants, Sally was selected as one of NASA's first six female astronauts. Yeah, that was the first year that they, they did female astronauts. It's just such a cool story. Like, mm. Now, prior to her first space flight, she was subject to a lot of media attention based on her gender. And during press conferences, she was asked questions like, will the flight affect your reproductive organs? And do you weep when things go wrong on the job? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my God. Despite this and the actual historical significance of this mission, Wright insisted that she saw herself only as an astronaut. And then June 18th, 1983, she became the first American woman in space as a crew member on the Space Shuttle Challenger, whose mission was to deploy two communication satellites. And during the flight, she became the first woman to operate the Space Shuttle's robotic arm. That's pretty cool. That is cool. Uh, She still remains the youngest American astronaut to have traveled space, having done so at the age of 32. Which I was quite surprised about. I thought there'd be younger astronauts. Well, really? Yeah. yeah. I thought they'd be older, to be honest, because like, I know you need a lot of physical fitness, but they also don't. You need to have like a really proven track. Yeah, they record. they take like people who have been like army pilots and stuff. Like, no, of course. But I thought like thirty-two would be like average. No, maybe. it's like most of them are like forty. Forty. I figured yeah. that out. Um, and yeah, so as you mentioned, she was also the first LGBT astronaut. She was extremely private about her personal life and her 27-year-long partnership with Tam O'Shaughnessy only came out after her death in 2012 from pancreatic cancer. Which is really sad. Yeah. Now, she inspired generations and became a massive role model for many. But she was also preceded by two Soviet women, Svetlana Savitskaya, who was the second woman in space in 1982, and then Valentina Tereshkova, who was the first ever woman to travel in space in 1963 on the Vostok 6. And both were incredible women who have their own amazing stories. But what I want to talk about a little bit more in depth is the actual first ever female in orbit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is it a dog? It is. Nailed it. <laughs> it's Laika, the Soviet space dog. And Laika was one of the first ever animals in space and the first ever animal to orbit the Earth. Now, during the 1950s and 1960s, the Soviet Union used dogs for suborbital and orbital space flights. 
to determine whether human space flight was actually feasible. And most of the dogs actually survived, and the few that died were mostly due to technical failures like parachutes not opening. And a notable exception, however, is Laika, whose death was expected from the outset of the mission. Now, dogs were the preferred animal for experiments because scientists thought that they were well well suited to endure long periods of inactivity. Unlike the Americans who were using um, apes and monkeys, the Soviets were a lot more comfortable with dogs. That's crazy to me. Like, surely it would be... Like, you'd think the dogs aren't okay with long periods of inactivity. Uh, they might mean more okay than apes and monkeys would be. Mm. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. Yeah, and they, they knew a lot of dogs from Pavlov's experiments, mm. and they preferred stray dogs because the scientists felt that they were able to tolerate, like, harsh environments uh, better than, like, other dogs that have been kept as pets. Oh, yeah. Uh, and female dogs were primarily used because of their temperament and because the suit that the dogs wore to collect the feces and urine... Uh, were fitted with a special device that was only suited towards female dogs. Now, the dog's training included standing still for long periods of time, wearing spacesuits, being placed in simulators that acted like rockets during launch, riding in centrifuges, mm-hmm. and basically being kept in progressively smaller cages to prepare them for orbital flight. Uh, doctors also performed surgery on these dogs, embedding medical devices in their bodies to monitor heart rate, um, breathing, blood pressure, and their physical movements. Now, most of the Soviet space dogs that participated were uh, used for suborbital flights. So they essentially flew to the edge of space, and then they came down, parachute opened, and they landed safely. Like, on the other hand, became the first living-born creature other than microbes um, to actually go into orbit, that is, going around the Earth. And she did that aboard Sputnik 2 in 1957, and she was dubbed Mutnik <laughs> by the American media as like a play on the Sputnik name. Uh. <laughs> now, uh, most unfortunately, Laika died from stress and overheating during her fourth circuit around the Earth. Fourth? Wow. Yeah, so she managed to circuit the Earth uh, approximately four times. But the true cause of her death was not made public until 2002. Hmm. Officials previously gave conflicting reports that she died when the oxygen supply ran out or she was euthanized. And they had originally intended for Laika to die from oxygen deprivation after seven days in space. But they also gave conflicting reports saying that, oh, we plan to euthanize her by putting poison in her food. And the food that they used was like this jelly-like protein nutritious gel that they trained the dogs to eat. And unfortunately, this actually didn't happen. So she didn't suffer a painless death like they intended. After reaching orbit, one of the blocks from Sputnik did not separate as planned. And this prevented the thermal control system from operating correctly, which raised the cabin temperature to over 40 degrees Celsius. After After five to seven hours into the flight, there were no signs of life received from the spacecraft. That's terrible. It is. Um, Now, the thing is, these experiments aim to prove that a living passenger could survive being launched into orbit and endure micro-rigging environments. And this, a lot of these experiments paved the way for human space flights and provided scientists with some of, like, the data on how living organisms can react to the space flight environments. Um, It also brought up a whole bunch of questions on ethics and how we treat animals in these situations. And at a press conference, uh, one of the senior Soviet scientists involved in the project stated that work with animals is a source of suffering to us all. The more time passes, the more I'm sorry about it. We shouldn't have done it. We did not learn enough from this mission to justify the death of the dog. And it is unfortunate. Sputnik 2 was made within four weeks of them agreeing to go onto this mission. And it was very, very rushed. 
And because this was the golden era of the space race and, you know, they wanted to be the first, uh, a lot of things weren't, were overlooked. And unfortunately, as much as what Leica taught the scientists, people don't think it was worth it. But, you know, Leica lives on in a lot of pop culture references and she definitely was a, a martyr and a sacrifice for the human endeavor. That's crazy, isn't it? Wow. Mm. It is. But that's what the, the dog in the end of a few different Marvel movies is supposed to be in reference to. Really? Yeah. Which which Marvel movies? Uh, the one with the collector in it the first time. Guardians. What, what does the dog do? In the it's just there. It's just oh, it's, it's just, just chilling out. In, it's, it, it's the collector guy has got like a cabinet, the dog, in the space uh, suit in the background. Oh. Right. Mm. That's cool. Well, yeah. one good thing is um, before, so Laika was found as a stray and the, the day before she went into space, or I might be wrong, three days before she went into space, one of the scientists actually took her home and she got a chance to play with his kids and have a bit of a normal life for, you know, a night. Oh, well, they sent um, her off and like burnt her to death. <laughs> well, they never intended to. Like, they knew that she wasn't going to come back because there was no repair. Well, there was no like rescue mechanism for the orbiter to come back down. Yeah. Uh, so they knew that she was destined to die from the start. She should have died in a more humane manner. No doubt about that. Uh, there's actually a really good documentary that I ha- that I recommend watching. It's called Soviet Space Dogs, and it like talks about how these dogs were trained, and you actually get to see them in some of the um, what is the compartments uh, going up. So for some of the suborbital flights, you actually see cameras wow. on the dogs and how they react to it. That's crazy. It would be pretty intense. I suppose it's part of it. We sort of forget like the space race was a race, and some things do get left aside in the. The desire to be first well even with the challenger missions after like space shuttle flights became a lot more commonplace they were slowly starting to outsource it to private companies mm. and they overlooked a lot of things like with the challenger the engineers knew that it was too cold yeah for the o-rings and because they said no no, no we're going to launch on this day they launched on that day, so it was more about meeting those deadlines rather than ensuring safety. I believe that that is the case where the in the trial afterwards, the one of the head engineers who had brought forward his complaints about the O-rings not being able to survive had requested a glass of ice water during the actual trial, put an O-ring in the ice water, waited for his turn to testify, and then broke it, showing that the ah. ice water that he had ordered was enough to mm. destroy the O-ring, and that was a big part of his testimony. That's crazy. I believe that's the right case. I'm not sure. I'd have to look at, go through it fully. Anyway, you're a nudge reaction. We are talking about... We're talking to Dr. Frank Sainsbury from the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology. So in case anyone's just tuned in, can you give us a quick rundown of what you do with viruses? Sure. Um, Infect so people? Put them in? Yeah. Most definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Goes against our HNS. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That would take a very long ethics application to get that through. <laughs> so we look at the proteins that make up the shell of a lot of viruses, um, and we try and put them to use, actually. That's really what we're doing. We're trying to make um, potentially therapeutics or other, ty- or other nanotechnology applications like tiny little bioreactors or biocatalytic reactors so we can put things inside these particles so we make them empty and we direct things to go inside them so just to give people an idea at home you've got like virus uh you probably people probably have the best idea like conception of a virus is like the bacteriophage is probably the best you probably see it in things like uh rick and morty does it a lot uh 
Really, you're gonna did use it Rick and Morty? No, but like, it's the most. It's the most image. Like the one that people actually have an image of. It's got like a little funny capsule head with a, a neck and then a yeah. bunch of legs that are it sort of like, like a spider robot yeah like, like, like a spider robot exactly yeah. right that's the that's uh, it's a virus it's, well. a vi- it's a bacteriophage virus yeah uh, if you want to think of its head it's filled with all of the DNA that makes a virus a virus it, like that's what injects into the cells it gets on there the legs position it and then it injects its its DNA goop into the cell in order to that's right. reproduce itself no, uh, that's what takes over the cell things in the cell and to make more copies of the virus yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, your work here, you have sort of uh, devirulenced, or taken out the, vir- the virulence factors of it. So all that viral DNA goop that it wants to kill things with is gone. So it's an empty, it's an empty shell. Yep. With, but it still has all those abilities. You know, it's still like a protein coat that can hold DNA. And now we can load it up with stuff that we want to put in there. Exactly right. So it's just the head, in fact, as well. A lot of viruses, so. Those those things, yep. the, the spider robot things, they're more like they're bacteriophages. We got to worry about them if you're bacteria. We're, exactly. we're fine. <laughs> we're, we're fine. They don't hurt us. But um, the, the, a lot of the viruses that affect plants or animals or humans are just the shell. Mm-hmm. So without without the neck or the legs, um, and yet we make them um, in different types of host um, production systems. So we make them empty. They're, that infectious, the DNA goop bit that's infectious, that's never included in, in what we make. So we don't take the natural virus and, and, and strip that out. We actually just make them empty, um, which you can do in, in different host cells. Some of the time we, we use plants to make them. Uh, some of the time we use bacteria to make the components and we get them to come together in a test tube. Uh, and so we were looking to, put, looking to put things inside that we can then take advantage of the ways that viruses have of getting into cells to deliver useful things into so cells. what did you call it before? You call it like a bioreactor? Oh, yeah. So one of the other uses is as a small little biocatalytic reactor. So enzymes are the proteins that build all of the things in biology. So these are the proteins that make every different Make the other more complicated. That proteins. make all of the <laughs> other biomolecules like DNA, RNA, proteins, and membranes. They all make the it bits all. that make you you. Yeah, mm. uh, enzymes, um, and so they're also responsible for making the compounds that you find in plants that are often used as medicines. Uh, and we want to find a way of doing that under more controlled conditions. So we're making the empty shells of the viruses contain these enzymes oh. so that we can use them as little nano scale because they're small, they're on a nanometer scale, so we call them nano reactors um, for making or discovering these new compounds. It's very so like fancy. Little, little factories inside a virus shell. Yeah. So, so can, because I know the, the capsid, the, the bit, little protein coat that holds, that normally would hold all the viral DNA. Mm. Uh, can that hold proteins, or do you have it, the nucleic acids in there, and then that causes the production of enzymes? No. So we we some in some cases um, a a virus capsid does hold other viral proteins. Okay. Um, in in again in our case we don't have those; they're empty. Yeah. But sometimes we use the way in which those interior proteins attach themselves to the inside of the capsid. We use that mechanism to encapsulate the proteins that we want inside. And so we can force them to contain the proteins that we want. I can see that because uh, obviously proteins 
trying to get like enough of these proteins to a location. Uh, is is the the capacity of the capsid mm. a bit of an issue? Yes, it is. And there's a lot of different types of capsids used for this application. So there are plant viruses of that are really quite small um, that are used to encapsidate proteins. They can only fit a few. And there's some of the bigger bacteriophages, but without their legs, um, <laughs> uh, can be used to encapsidate two or 300 oh, um, wow. enzymes at a time. Yep. So one of the biggest things is uh, getting these virus-like particles to be targeted nanotherapeutics, essentially. Mm -hmm. So we want to make these virus-like particles essentially a way to deliver drugs or medicines to certain areas of the cell, like take medicine to a tumor. How does it is the targeting ability of these virus-like particles on the actual capsule itself, um, say if it doesn't have any legs, is it still able to go to the, mm. those cells or do you actually put things on the outside to help target it? Uh, yeah, so sometimes, yes, we want to encapsulate things inside like small molecule therapeutics like drugs that are not proteins and we, we can do that. Um, and we're using virus shells that have their own mechanism for attaching to mammalian cells, for example, um, and driving their own uptake. And so they have encoded into the proteins that make up the shell ways of being recognized by cells, um, by cell receptors that will then lead to the uptake of that particle. Getting the sneaky way in. Getting the sneaky way in. And that's what viruses do. They find a way in that actually evades sort of the surveillance or the, the, the usual traps that cells have set up to prevent things from getting in them because um, cells are really good at destroying things that you want to try and put in them. But viruses have ways around that. So they have ways around um, going through these uptake pathways that will lead to their destruction, basically. Um, as, as you would expect, I mean, like this is their job. This <laughs> is their job. That's what they do. They deliver a sensitive bioactive cargo and so that's what we're trying to take advantage of trojan horse yeah, except in virus form yeah well mm -hmm. essentially what, what all viruses are is just because like but there's a there's a big debate uh, whether or not a virus when it's free floating is is alive or not or something in between mm. and uh so like yeah essentially it is just a vehicle to evade detection and then and then hijack a productive body's ability to reproduce i feel like everything's kind of like that though <laughs> <laughs> wow that's a we're all parasites <laughs> yeah. some, we're all some level um, yeah i suppose i wanted to ask you this is your hard question for the interview um i've been hearing personally about nanoscale therapeutic vehicles mm. for years mm. um is this stuff actually happening outside the lab is it something that you know there is going to be a therapeutic clinical thing can we can we go and get you know virus particles to put in me to do something uh yeah okay so that is a tough question <laughs> there is um, i promise there's only one <laughs> there, there are a few formulations for therapeutics that are nanoscale particles but they're not the sort of intelligent or sophisticated particle that has a specific targeting mechanism built in um that's attached to a large nanoscale cargo sort of thing. And I say large, it's obviously very, very small, but it's a lot bigger <laughs> than a single drug molecule. Yeah. Um, and in, in all honesty, the, the potential of this platform has, been, has received a lot of hype. And recently it's become evident that it's 
only making a very small difference to the amount of specificity of targeting, for example, okay. for delivery of chemotherapeutics, where you don't want them to interact with non, you know, not healthy cells. Um, it, uh, is it's turning out that it's only making a small difference to that specificity when it gets to whole body experiments. It's very easy to show that it looks great in a test tube in, in cell culture. Yeah. Uh, but it's very, very different when you're getting to the complex tissue organization and everything in a body. And would a lot of that be, so I know nanoparticles have been the, the hype word for quite a while now. Yeah, and that these, and quantum, right? <laughs> yeah, that quantum. So like nanoparticles especially. Um, and I know a lot of nanoparticles used for drug delivery these days are, are attached to polymers, mm. um, like polyethylene glycol or PEG. People love PEG because it doesn't react too much in the body. PEG is very inert when you add it to the body. So people functionalize this polymer and use that as a drug delivery system. So um, I'm guessing that has a lot more um, applications or they are easier to get to that clinical stage than I imagine virus-like particles would be because they have that virus connotation to them or, or am I mm. wrong? No, no. So the, the immunogenicity of the particles that we use would be an issue when it comes to their use in vivo like in a body whether that's in an experimental system or in humans um, but it depends their eventual use would depend on how effective they are and then how um, how important it is to use them at that time so if 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 they become very effective it is possible to suppress the immune system for the use of these treatments. Um, so that could be overridden. So sure, PEG is used, conjugated to a lot of biopharmaceuticals as mm. it is to prevent immune responses to proteins in the body. Um, although it turns out that, that you can have an immune response against <laughs> this polymer. Yeah. Um, it's quite tough to get things into a body and get away with it, basically. We're very good at protecting ourselves. Um, the immune system's smart. The yeah. immune system is smart. It's very complicated. <laughs> Extremely. <laughs> you might have heard something about it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but so we we we're looking actually at, at in the first instance at building a, a research tool. So a lot of work goes into engineering cells outside the body. So engineering cells outside the body you don't have to contend with the immune system, and then there are treatments where you put the cells back in the body, for them they they. They're derived from a person. Mm -hmm. You can modify them for a certain function and you can put them back in. And so we're looking at making efficient ways of doing this modification. That's cool. Mm. So it's similar mm -hmm. to like the, the thing that I would imagine with that would be like your stem cell models where you take exactly. stuff out of stem cells. You take, you take stem cells out of somebody, you make them into cells and then you put them back into the human. That's right. So you'd be doing something similar with but changing them with viruses. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so... Some advantages over existing platforms are that they're biocompatible. They are made of proteins. So once they get in there and deliver their payload, they will just degrade. Hmm. Um, and getting them in is sort of autonomous. Like I said, they have the ability encoded within their shells to get into cells. Because we've essentially just hijacked the existing viral system. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, We're taking exactly what the virus does, but replacing what's bad about it with something good. And to tell people at home, like, let me tell you, you do not want to be describing, to trying to design 
from scratch a whole new penetration a biological penetration system is just something that that's right you yeah. want to you want to let millions of years of evolution do the heavy lifting for you there <laughs> exactly yes. so exactly so with a lot of those um, immune therapies, like taking out certain immune cells, altering them, putting them back in the body mm. so that they fight things like cancer, that's commonly done with um, CRISPR-Cas9, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. We and can't have our uh, last episode without mentioning uh, CRISPR. <laughs> What's the, is there a benefit to using viral, virus-like particles to modify cells as opposed mm. to something like gene editing with CRISPR-Cas9? Well, actually, so to get CRISPR-Cas into a cell you need to have a delivery vehicle. Ah. And so you either need to deliver it as a piece of DNA that will go and express the Cas9 protein or the Cas variant, um, and it will express the guide RNA to come together. And that's actually quite inefficient. Yeah, um, you're telling me. <laughs> I say my artist projects. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, and also there are viral vectors that will deliver it and undergo replication. So they become replicons of, of DNA in the cells and so they will produce many more copies of the Cas9 protein, but that's fairly uncontrolled. So you can have runaway translation of the Cas9, and that leads to off-target cleavage of the genome. And so delivery of protein, or even better, the Cas9 guide RNA complex, so the ribonuclear protein complex, directly into cells is a much potentially a much more precise way of doing it. So you can control the amount that's in a cell. And... Um, Surprise, surprise. We're looking at doing this using <laughs> the shell of a virus. Yeah, I, was, I was about to Get say, because like, yeah, a CRISPR-Cas9 system is not necessarily exclusive from the virus because the virus is a penetrating mechanism. Exactly. And you, that's why the question I was going to ask you about um, even delivering proteins and such. How much work has gone into like delivering fusion proteins that uh, so you can sort of cut off, you can separate a protein like that's too large to fit in a normal capsid that you'll be using into two strains of, uh, of uh, virus-like particle that you'll be using to infiltrate mm-hmm. a cell mm-hmm. and allowing those two strains of pro- two sets of proteins to then uh, f- refuse together to become a functional unit. Is that a, is that a possibility? Yeah, it absolutely is. So, so we know from some of the work we've done that we can deliver two differently loaded particles. So we can deliver particle. Well, you know, all of this work gets done with just fluorescent proteins, yeah. so that we can see it in a microscope. <laughs> and so we we can co-deliver particles containing a green fluorescent protein and particles containing a red fluorescent protein, and they will both be delivered into parts of the cell where we need them. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Your natural reaction here on Z Digital, and we've got Dr. Frank Sainsbury in the studio talking all things viruses and outsides of viruses. Virus-like particles. Virus-like mm. particles. I'll get there eventually, right? For our last show ever on Natural <laughs> Reaction, nearly forgot to mention it there, <laughs> just in case you forgot. Just in case you just tuned in, this is the last show. What are you doing? Text me. Yeah. Call me. Let me know you love me. <laughs> That's all I need. <laughs> That's all we're here for. <laughs> um, so, Frank, can you tell me... Actually, one question that we always ask every guest, because um, we feel like it gives a bit more humanization to scientists in the lab. Um, what do you do? What's your day-to-day life like in the lab? Uh, yeah, okay. I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> I give you lots of warning, too. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually... Um, so, I, I do go in the lab a bit myself, still. Recently, I'm... The one who sort of does cloning for people in my group which is fun because uh, dna usually behaves itself so it's, <laughs> i find it 
much easier to work with than working with proteins because mm-hmm. they're so different, they're so variable, and, and so they. Sorry, and working with RNA is just mind bending. RNA is a nightmare. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. um, it's really not very <laughs> stable, and yeah. And well. your skin's covered in RNAs that kill it, and yeah. that's, that's <laughs> right. Everything kills RNA <laughs> until you protect it inside a virus capsid. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> um, and so, really, mostly, I'm at the computer, and there are emails. Um, there's something that I need to write, um, which is great. You know, there's a couple of reviews on my sure desk at the moment is. that I'm working on. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not great until you get into it, and then it's great. Okay. Um, there's a sort of barrier to getting started. But once you, I get, at least for me, once I get started, it's it's it can be quite exciting. So at the moment, I'm actually writing something on viruses in their use in in all sorts of different nanotechnologies. So biomedical nanotechnology, but also in energy storage and nanoelectronic components that people are doing with different viruses. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so it's fun. Yeah. That does sound fascinating. Mm. And usually I, I get none of that done every day because there are students to see and then I get itchy and I want to go talk to somebody. I go for a walk. And <laughs> head a bit for of, a coffee. you know. Head for a coffee. There's a bit of paperwork. I need to get, you know, something signed off so that I can pay for something. And Lab meetings. And lab meetings. Yeah, there's a lot of distractions at the moment. Sometimes I just put on headphones and close the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what you have to do sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I hear that you've just got a grant. You've got three years? Yeah, that's right. I've just been awarded a new fellowship as part of a CSIRO future science platform. Um, And that's an initiative where CSIRO is looking at different uh, new sort of fields of science to see how useful they can become um, and to grow an Australian community in, in these areas. And the one I'm in is the Synthetic Biology Future Science Platform. Cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, I wrote this project thinking it was a bit blue sky. And um, the more I think about it now, the more absolutely bonkers I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very excited to, to, to see see what we get. And I think that's the way to fund science, really, because you can never tell where it's going to go. And, you know, as long as somebody is capable, something useful is going to come out of it. This is, yeah, I think this is something that people forget a lot. Like, uh, we were talking about going to space in the space race earlier. No one could have predicted in uh, the beginning of the space race that nonstick pans, <laughs> GPS, and uh, the internet would come mm. from that exploration. Uh, those exp- those attempts to study how we can explore space. No, you couldn't. You couldn't have sat down in 19, uh, 1930, 1940, 1950 and gone, "Yeah, this will happen." Absolutely. Off the, off the back of this. Uh, That's right. So and without those pioneering pooches. Who would never have had these things? And look, if no one takes on my nonstick pan, I'm just uh, (laughs) out of all those technologies. It's funny because your job relies on the internet. Yeah. That's maybe why I'm so okay with it. Yeah, yeah. maybe she likes cooking. Yeah, so can you tell us, um, this is actually, it goes on really well from what you're talking about with those crazy projects that you're doing. Hmm. What do you find most interesting about your research? Mm. About my own specific research? I mean, it I've, could be, like, I don't care. You can answer <laughs> any way you like. Yeah, right. Well, I, I personally, I think all of my research is really interesting. <laughs> That's why I do it. <laughs> um, but what I find interesting about my job is that I get to do that. Of course. Yeah. Um, I just like 
Yeah, it's funny. I feel like I like just dreaming up crazy things to do. Um, but they all have a sort of goal in the end. And it's, I suppose it's driven by understanding why things are the way they are. And once you know that, then you can potentially control it. We're all control freaks. Whatever, Whoever works on technology just wants to be able to bend things into the way that they want them to do other cool things. Yeah. Yeah, which is, um, you know... I probably shouldn't admit that <laughs> on radio, no. but we're all a little bit messed you know, up here in science. Yeah, I have to admit that really, you know, I want to make cool things that will, could make a difference. That's awesome! What a goal, right? Yeah, I do think mm. that that is like probably true that a lot of people have that sort of overarching goal. Like, I want to make cool things that make a difference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be nice. It would. It would be nice. That would be true. Yeah. Speaking of cool things that make a difference, uh, with your work on virus-like particles. What is like what what would be the cool thing that makes a difference that you would like to make there? Yeah, in what's coming up. Well, I hope that by knowing more about the ways that virus-like particles interact with cells that we can improve delivery mechanisms for these things that we're doing in cells in vitro and there are a lot of reasons for engineering cells in vitro, like the stem cell reason and things like that. And if we can find a way that improve the delivery across the board of, of whatever into these cells, um, then we can make new tools for research. So we can modify stem cells in all sorts of unpredictable ways to find out what it is that leads to the progression of genetic diseases or what it is that leads to um, the beginning of cancer and things like that, just through different um, screens of, of molecules for delivery. Mm. Mm, that's, a, that's a worthy goal. Mm. Uh, what, do you, what do you think is the biggest sort of obstacle or bottleneck towards that then? Yeah, I think it's just technical. Just all te it's just technical, mm. just time. Yep. Because I think, you know, what we're doing, it doesn't have any immediate ethical implications obviously every technology is dual use yeah so it could go either way so you know bad things can be done with pretty much any technology um but so at the moment it's a technical challenge of making a generic system uh, for being able to deliver things into these cells and and watch what happens that that idea of a generic mm. system is quite powerful as well in that uh because like we, a lot of these, a lot of systems start off very specific and uh, very finicky and very fragile. Quite often, uh, they'll fall apart mm. under very minor deviance deviancies from the the norm or the the, the optimal. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we get those generic systems, is when we really start seeing an explosion of research potential because it just puts it in so many hands. That's right. Yeah, and as soon as there is a, a sort of broader understanding, that's when research sort of makes a big leap forward and has a big impact hmm. so should we just be uh paying everybody every scientist that wants to do research give them as much money they want <laughs> that would be the dream that would be that the dream would be the dream i think <laughs> it would be good to give scientists the opportunity to explore i guess as much as they want in terms of the ha not having that bigger picture and for a lot of the grant writing and the applications you have to have that big picture side to things where it's like this technology will improve the lives and it's going to be the new like 
anti-cancer therapeutic. It's going to have all these massive implications. And I think a lot of that creates an issue with getting funding and getting research because obviously you will get funding for those things that have big picture applications, but there's very little encouragement on the discovery side in in the exploration side to things, which is what a large amount of scientists actually want to do. Mm. They want to explore and discover. Mm. And if some big picture application comes out of that, then that would be the ultimate thing. Yeah. But there isn't that encouragement for these discovery projects. And it's. It, I think that's difficult. And again, it is important to note that basically everything that you really, really love has come out of some sort of discovery project at some point. Uh, because uh, uh, for a lot of us on the, uh, the consumer end of this is that we get it after uh, private industry or something has commercialized it and has passed it down. But it is very, 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 very vanishingly rare for private industry to have done the initial research mm. that has produced said product simply because there is no guarantee of a return. And uh, you you can't make a business that way. Actually, <laughs> that's a that's a really interesting point because um I watched a really really interesting talk from the World Science Festival which happened earlier this year in Brisbane, and it was this scientist who was a cancer researcher and she'd done her whole life in cancer and this particular type of brain cancer, this really damaging type of brain cancer. I think it was brain cancer, and um she'd found this this really interesting therapeutic that they could use to be able to um, extend lives of patients that have this type of cancer. But because it was an old drug or because it was there was some issue with it and it wouldn't have made the drug companies enough money. So they had the, they had this thing. They need to go to clinical trials, but it wasn't going to make enough money for any it drug. It might be a new, a new purpose for an old drug and the patent is already expired. Yeah, it, so it, there's it, no way to make it a non. Okay, you, there's no protection against generic variants. Yeah, and so it was something similar to that, and they can't get this into clinical trials. They can't mm. get the million dollars they need to be able to make it work because there was just not enough money in it for the drug companies. And that, to me, was insane. I was like, okay, if that's that's exactly what you guys want, right? That's, mm. You want cancer, you well, want this, but you can't. That's kind of the insane. point of the redo project, which we spoke about a few weeks earlier, where they're repurposing drugs like uh, Viagra, which is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, mm. for cancer therapeutics because there's been enough like small trials showing, like, well, look at the effectiveness of this. Yeah. Now, in saying that, the big companies aren't going to get much return on um, having this as an anti-cancer therapeutic I, as it, well. It's cra- it is a really interesting idea to me. that I mean, that I don't think there's a win no. in, in the system, right? Like, there's not... I think once you get to the point of having a global market and a giant business, the science aspect and the pioneering aspect goes out the window and it becomes an economical aspect and nothing more. Yeah, it just costs so much money to run the trials to prove that it's going to be a viable therapeutic. And you can't guarantee a return. That's right. It's a big thing because like, by definition, like, you're doing this to find out <laughs> if, if you can do it. You can't say beforehand, oh, it's going to... Like, if you could say beforehand it's going to work, there'll be a return, you wouldn't be running the trial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that would not be the point. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the the infrastructure, both sort of physical and institutional, that's set up both around, like, uh, how we commercialize it, but also how we research it. Like, the, the sort of grant funding model where you need to get a grant for the next few years ahead of you and then you're in limbo again. You don't know where you're going to be. But congrats on the grant, though. Yeah. Yeah, well, it just sort of shows maybe we need to start thinking in more of a long-term 
way that and governments let's do that let's (laughs) (laughs) science and governments long term let's do it well australia has a relatively low percentage of gdp invested in research and development actually among oecd countries it's fairly down the table Um, that sucks it it does suck a bit yeah I mean, um, yeah, more be, than a bit. <laughs> it, yeah, it would be nice to have, you know, a supportive nation where there was a bit more understanding of the potential benefits of the basic research. Um, so you have lived in Brisbane for the last five years. Yep. We were talking about welfare. So where were you before that? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, before Brisbane, I was in Quebec City in Canada working. Cold, but nice. Yeah. <laughs> Cold, but very nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, Working on plant physiology, um, oh. it was a slightly different to what I do now, which is uh, another beautiful thing about research is how you know you can go on this journey of different <laughs> subjects and discovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've you know I've loved it so far. Um, I, I grew up in Sydney, and I went to Sydney Uni, and then I did PhD in the UK, and I worked on with a plant virologist uh, on developing ways of making proteins in plants to make making more viable methods for expressing pharmaceutical proteins in plants um, and actually it's a bit of a one of these stories of look, looking into some basic phenomenon of fundamental research of plant virology that led to an, a, a big discovery to be honest we um, I got really interested in in the way in which this plant virus controls the translation of different proteins in its genome. Because viruses have such a small genome, they have all sorts of ingenious ways of encoding for different proteins with overlapping sequences or different um, start sites that lead to proteins with different functions. And we were looking at some of these start sites for translation um, just to be able to control the expression better, actually. Um, and just through that we discovered a way of making pharmaceutical proteins like antibodies or virus-like particle vaccines in plants that was suddenly one of the best in the world Um, totally unexpected but obviously we recognized it straight away um, and we were already working with a company who were from Quebec who make pharmaceutical proteins in plants Um, that was 2007 that discovery and this year that company is running phase three clinical trials of an influenza vaccine that they make using this expression system that came out of just looking at how this random plant virus controls its translation that's so cool yeah it's pretty it's pretty awesome um so they've been running this trial in in dozens or not dozens in a in a five or six countries but with five or six thousand patients and towards the end of this year we should know how well it's performed and wow fantastic it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing so i went from there to work in quebec city sort of in association with that company and looking at the other side of things how the plant handles having to do this work for us in making these proteins and ways in which we can modify those plant cells to do a better job. That's so cool. That is cool. Uh, how, did, how did it take us for uh, an hour and 14 to get into that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've moved on. <laughs> Doing other stuff now. Yeah. Just briefly on those plants, how do the plants take it well? 
producing the uh, <laughs> what we need to like I, I've got to assume no be a bit don't. grumpy about it yeah. that de- it really depends on what you're asking them to make mm. yeah um, some things they just take it in stride and you don't see anything change visually um, if you have a closer look they actually there's a massive reorganization of what they're doing in terms of their physiology um, to adjust for that mm. But uh, no, they just, they, they, they carry on, they grow well. And I probably should say, we, what a plant that, that's used around the world for this sort of work is an Australian native, oh. relative of tobacco. Uh, Benthamiana? That's right, yeah. Nicosiana Benthamiana, in the same geno- ge- genus as, as tobacco. Making tobacco? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, this show is just all like bad jokes. So. <laughs> we have to follow quickly. You can do mess So I'm going to ask one more question and then we might yeah. talk to another song. Um, we've kind of talked a bit about how you would use virus-like particles for things like, um, like making baby reactors or mm. like getting them into cells to do stuff for cancer research. But I've seen some of the stuff that you've talked about on the site is also about imaging with mm. these vehicles. So mm-hmm. how would you... Is that something that's like viable? Would you Im- how would you image something in a virus? Like, what, what would you do? So it's sort of the same principle as delivering to specific cells. Once you have a targeting mechanism um, that is encoded on on the surface of your particle, uh, you can then use that to deliver various molecules that aid in imaging from a whole body perspective and actually there's a whole range of things that that could be that could be a bright fluorescent dye molecule Um, it could be a bioluminescent enzyme which is something that we're looking at yeah so an enzyme that actually generates light as it sort of catalyzes this reaction Um, or sort of heavy metals for contrast imaging by MRI, like magnetic resonance imaging. That sounds dangerous. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Have you it's never been in an MRI? <laughs> yeah, but I don't, one haven't actually. <laughs> I've been a, a very healthy 24-year-old. Thank you very much. <laughs> but yeah, so can you, is that what they do? Do they put heavy metals into you before they put you in an MRI? Mm. Yeah, sometimes. Depends on the, what, depends what they're doing. Yeah, it's not always, sometimes, Ooh. so some, imi- some, um, contrast reagents are less heavy so fluorine uh, uh, f19 fluorine molecules they have a good contrast as um, um, in comparison to the hydrogen which is actually what makes up most of us uh, in terms of the number of atoms and um, yeah so they'll in- inject it and it depends what you want to look at so it either needs to be targeted or not it could be that they're looking at your vasculature so they just want to see something that's floating around in your bloodstream and that's gallium? No, not gallium. That's Gal- gadolinium. Gadolinium. Mm. Yeah. Well, there you mm-hmm. go. You learn something new every day. Mm. Just oh, get a little bit extra are. metal it's in you. So potentially we could load up the particles with these metals, and if they have a specific targeting, then that can be used to monitor whatever's happening where they're targeted to. So it could be specific targeted to a tumor, and so you could use that to monitor tumor growth or shrinkage, ideally, oh. uh, in the event of treatment. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. All I know is they make you eat a lot of barium meal before you have an x-ray for the, uh, t- if they want to visualize stuff in your intestines. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Because mm. I, because again. I had no idea this was a thing. Because you think, well, it, about, it depends what you want to see. Because like an x-ray, for instance, will go straight through most of your body and li- get your bones. And that's why you use it because you want to see the bones. Uh, but by filling up the intestine, you can like, with a, a substance that will absorb the same, like, will absorb it on a higher level. 
in the same way like your bones will, you can visualize those as well. Mm. The more you know. Mm. Yeah, so again, like you're saying, it just depends on what you're trying to see. Mm. I think we've I think we've reached have we finished the end of the questions? Have we got more questions? We'll, we'll see throughout the rest of the show. Something <laughs> yes. might pop up. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give the occasional question, as always. Uh, yeah. Um, so this is the last episode of Natural Reaction. <laughs> in case again. you guys uh, haven't noticed already. Um, you're on Natural Reaction on Zed Digital here. And Izzy. Go, about hybrid. Chicken me. Well, first we'll just talk about embryos for a little bit. Uh, Fine. Because I think... How we sort of talk about cells and genes, sort of in general, gives the idea that your entire sort of genetic blueprint is in those, it's just all about your genetic code. It's just in the DNA itself. Uh, and that sort of gives the idea that like uh, it's all programmed in the cell. When the embryo starts developing, it just sort of goes in this build path from everything is from within the cell, which is not quite true because cells affect each other. There are inter there are intracellular forces that they, they how they communicate to each other de- plays a big role in how a an organism and an embryo develops. Really? Yeah. So uh, this was sort of first identified. Well, not first identified, but like well, like the probably the experiment that really brought this to light is uh, by S- Hilde Mangold. We've spoken about her. Yes. Hilda Mangold. Hilda Mangold, yes. Uh, in the, who was in working in the laboratory of Hans Spemann. Was she a, a Nobel Prize laureate? Or was she a... Yes. Yeah. Um, no, she was a, a snub scientist, she was I a believe. Snub ah. Yes. Ah. Yes. Hilda Mangold. So I think uh, Hans Spearman was actually awarded the Nobel Prize. I, I believe so, Based yeah. on of her dissertation. No yes. And so this is what we call the Spearman Organizer, which maybe we should change that to the Mangold Organizer. Oh, it's actually <laughs> the Mangold Spearman Organizer. Oh, good. This must just be an old resource. We'll just, we'll just <laughs> drop off the uh, Spearman. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so what it showed, well, they, basically they showed that certain cells play a role in organizing the development into other larger sort of structures of other cells. And they did this with uh, uh, salamanders by grabbing some, like they transplanted some cells from one embryo to another. What does this have to do with like chickens? I'm getting there. Okay, okay. Because <laughs> uh, this is, we we're trying to explain why they would do this. Because we kind of have already known why you can like sort of uh, attach cells to each other. And like, for anyone who's seen the pictures of like ears grown on rats and that kind of thing, you know that these things can happen. Uh, so what the actual role of this experiment is, is about these organizer cells. And uh, so by attaching some of these, uh, sorry, by transplanting some organi- uh, some cells from a different salamander embryo onto another one, they managed to grow a second head onto a uh, head structure on on this poor little salamander embryo. Uh, and this was sort of one of the very first key pieces of evidence to show that no, it's not just about in the cells. Each individual cell knows what it's doing, and that sort of forms a greater whole. But there's intracellular communication through lots of different channels, lots and lots mm. of different channels. Basically, your cellular neighbours can affect how you grow. Yeah, and then, and this is incredibly important for how an embryo develops. So, uh, there is a legal limitation for the re- on the research of human embryos. Uh, when, I, when I say legal limitation, it's like for the most of the world that studies these things. Uh, we're included in this, we have it in law, where you do not study uh, human embryos past the 14-day mark growing in a dish. Like if, you, if you're growing human embryos, you don't study them past the 14-day mark. And this is sort of a, an accepted, a generally accepted scientific standard, like the US, Canada, us, India, China, most places. It, either, even if it's not enshrined in specific laws, 
it is will probably enshrine in specific scientific guidelines. Uh, so what this was doing was studying organi- human organizer cells by getting getting around that fourteen day embryo rule by tra- by uh, making these hybrid embryos of with chickens. So they obtained uh, human culture, uh, human stems, human cultures in like about a twenty two millimeter dish, and they they provided growth factors and other sort of spatial uh, design of the dish to make sure that these Bits. yeah basically so this these. The cells wouldn't just grow in a in a horizontal flat plane. You just get an undifferentiated mass. So it's mm. trying to grow structures is basically what it's doing, and then grabbing some of these uh, these human cells that are trying to grow structures, and then making hybrids with these hu- with these chicken cell chicken embryos that are they're twelve hour old chicken embryos, which is about the equivalent of a fourteen day old human embryo. Uh, and what they saw was a secondary nervous system chicken nervous system was developed on these hybrid embryos what it shows is that the, the human organizer cells took uh seized control and took a bit of, took a role and started growing out growing this other nervous system showing that humans also have these organizer cells because we haven't been able to due to like the, the various limitations on the research on human embryos we haven't been able to show their role and we've shown that we can actually explore human or human organizer cells outside of the context of a human embryo giving us like accessing a whole life way of researching this field basically so uh from like a person not related to the study they were saying like uh this opens up the ability to research a whole uh range of things just sort of from where things go wrong in human embryonic development because we can start looking at it beyond just like a genetic level, saying when this gene is dysfunctional, this doesn't happen. We can start saying, oh, well, we also need the organizer cells to be in this configuration or in this role in this format in order to make it work. So chickens also have their own organizer cells. Mm. How did the scientists get around that? Okay, so from what my understanding is, the they had... With the twelve-hour-old chicken embryos, they had already seen like the mapped the general development of the embryo it was making, and then after the addition of these new human organizer cells, uh, more of those chicken cells formed a second nervous system. So they could say that uh, while the, they could say the original for, uh, plan was from the chicken organizer cells and you know innate chicken ge- genetics and all that sort of thing, the secondary uh, nervous system that developed after the addition of these human cells was from the human organizer cells. Hmm. Yeah. So it's all very interesting and it opens up new paths forward. Uh, it is definitely not like the clickbaity sort of chick- human chicken embryo. Uh, Hybrid article. Yeah, you're not, you're not going to get, I don't know. A chicken with a human head? Yeah, we're not, we're not seeing any like deformed monstrosities coming out of anywhere anytime soon. A chicken with human feet? <laughs> would you would you want chicken feet? A chicken without uh, without wings, just arms. But would you want that? No, of course not. I'm just <laughs> I'm just making some Frankenstein. Like, what about humans that lay eggs? We already do. But like lay eggs, not not like just have eggs. I feel like that would be a very big difference to our anatomy. Yeah, I feel like I, I would probably. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go out and live and say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like that's no. I mean, even just like arms instead of like like you'd have to change a lot of internal stuff. Mm. So you know why mammals can't have wings as well as limbs? So say the idea of having a pegasus. 
Yeah. It's completely mythical because of um, a developmental set of genes called your homeobox genes. And basically, homeobox genes are responsible for the patterning of your body system. So where your arms grow, where your legs grow, and the overall pattern. If you introduce something like wings into that system for a mammal, it it's basically lethal. So we'll oh. never be able to get a Pegasus. Damn. But but you could replace the arms of a human with wings. Yeah. I think so. All potentially. Right. That's all right. Well, um, what do you think about it? Because like, if you look at a wing structure in mammals, uh, mm. or a flu or a flippers, or uh, someone's got to go email the show saying, actually, whales don't have flippers. They have mm. a specific thing called something. Uh, yeah. But whatever it is. I wish we were that famous. Yeah. If you X-ray, <laughs> if you they they are modified like arm structures. Like, well, like bats. Basically, yeah. their wings mm. are just membranes from like really long fingers. Yeah. So mm. that's fun. I mean, even u- unicorns are perfectly possible. Yeah, horns um, very different. But thing a to Pegasus a... is kind of like an impossible thing, which is a bit mm. sad. Well, I mean, Pegasus mm. is kind of look ridiculous when you think about them logically. Is it like, Pegasi? Pegasi. I mean, Pegasi look ridiculous. <laughs> just, like, or, they're or, never going to actually fly. Come on. Or like a griffin. I mean, griffins look a little bit less ridiculous. I think it's because of the bigger wingspan. I like how you find that griffins to be less ridiculous than <laughs> Pegasus. At least they're slightly bird-like. They're not just a horse with wings. Like, come on. Come now. <laughs> come now. <laughs> so, so where do you draw the line on your, <laughs> your mythical animals there? <laughs> Obviously, Griffin. Yeah, ob- obviously it's Griffins and Pegasus. <laughs> come oh, I'm on, sorry. come on. All right, so have we, have we finished this up? Don't yeah, I think I think like this about just yeah, to keep it obviously d- gotten way. Yeah, we've gotten pretty off topic. So well, I'll just finish off saying like, yeah, this while it doesn't open the way for you know actual human animal hybrids, and we probably wouldn't want that anyway <laughs> no. because that would be terrifying. More like more like just painful for the poor organism. Yeah, and uh, also terrifying. Uh, and these embryos didn't survive past thirty days. They actually. Like just mm. waited and see whether they or did they did they kill them at thirty days? No, they, uh, for, it's a bit probably both. ambiguously worded, but like it seems like they were not very good after thirty days, and they may have just terminated the rest of them. But then again, this is like we're talking about two different nervous systems trying to grow on top of each other, so I, I can understand that these just would fail. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, by nervous systems, obviously. It won't be the nervous systems that can feel pain for the organism if anybody else is concerned. Oh yeah. I imagine it would be very, very primitive before the brain is actually developed to the point where it can sense pain. These are twelve hour embryos. Yeah. Like with, yes. They're uh yeah, they're they're a long way off consciousness or anything like that. Uh but they do that all that ha- all that having been said, we are opening the door to some very interesting research on uh human development, human embryonic development. And you're here on Natural Reaction, which if you haven't heard it's the last show <laughs> I can't stop now. I have to do it every time. <laughs> Um, and yeah, we're talking about. I, actually, I'm going to talk about Juno. So while we were in the break, I actually showed um, I showed the team in here a, a bit of a video of what a flyby looks like of Juno taking um, photos of Jupiter. Now, this is so cool to me because I kind of I thought about it and I went, surely the images that Juno takes don't look like that, right? Like that's they don't they don't have a video camera on Juno called Juno Cam taking mm-hmm. those photos. So and how does it work? How do you how do you get an image? from Juno in the shape that it's in with from the Juno cam all the way back to Earth and then how does it get edited into these beautiful, beautiful images or videos? And to start with, Juno actually takes photos. This is so cool. Juno takes photos and they look like pancakes. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it looks like. That's a photo that you get from Juno. It is basically strips of planet 
that they take across the camera. It actually uses the way the Juno probe spins and takes a photo across the whole planet and then it goes around, does it again, and then you end up with a planet pancake. A planet pancake. I'm using that word. I love it. Um, And so what they then do is they come back to Earth. Apparently they only take 12 to 20 photos of flyby. Only. Yeah. So what you've seen there is actually a reconstruction and they've zoomed in and then the next image they zoom in and the next image they zoom in. I feel like you need more than 12 to 20 photos to make such detailed images. Well, they're very high Mm. quality images because you do have... And I mean... It really is more than 12 images because you get those, those sweeping pancakes. So each of the, the layers of the pancakes is an image that they then stitch together to make the thing. And so how they do it, right, so the 12 to 20 images, they finish, uh, it finishes a flyby. That happens every two months or so. So you get a flyby, it finishes that. The Juno probe will do some diagnostics. It'll do some things. It'll make sure it's okay, how the methane levels were, all that kind of stuff. And then it sends back these 12 to 20 images. It takes about two days. Apparently, they have six minutes an hour to send photos back, considering oh. they've got other stuff that they need to send back as well, other instruments and that kind of thing. And then once they've got those those images back, they're still planet pancakes, right? They're not, they're not these pretty images that you see. I mean, if everyone's looked at the Juno images you see at home, you can Google like um, Jupiter right now and you'll see these beautiful images of, you know, the red spots or you'll see these big images of the poles or and, and that stuff doesn't actually happen. There's, there's different colours that you get on the images, but they're actually individual colour photos. So you get red, you get green, you get blue and they're pancaked. So people... Citizen scientists, these are not NASA scientists, by the way, citizen scientists, people who just are interested in this, will get the raw images that you get from Juno after these flybys and put them all together. And different citizen scientists will do different parts of the process. And then the person who puts the images together and then makes the video might be different people. And then they all put them up. It's all Creative Commons. So these people are doing it for free Mm. just because they want to. And I don't know, I just thought that was such a cool initiative that NASA has put together and done this. And I, I love it. I don't know. I'm just, I'm absolutely obsessed. Well, the the pictures are ridiculously awe-inspiring when you look at them and they are so detailed and beautiful. And I, I can see why people would want to do it. Yeah, and people get excited every time a flyby happens. And this is the bit that like gets me the most. Juno, the camera, it's called Juno Cam, was actually only supposed to last for about eight flybys. Because of how crazy the magnosphere is, magnetosphere. Magnetosphere. Yeah. yeah. And but it's still going. It's been twelve of these flybys, and they've talked about this is actually the last scheduled flyby is the thirteenth one, and that one's happening. Or it might be the fourteenth actually. I think the fourteenth is the last one, and that's um, going to happen next month, and that's all they've scheduled. At this point, we don't know whether Juno is going to keep going, whether they're going to destroy it. Well, they I, should just keep going with it. But <laughs> they might not. They might decide that it's time. It's time to kill it. Well, how are they going to destroy it? They're going to crash it into the planet? Yes. Well, I imagine they'll just keep doing it. It depends how its orbit's degrading, I suppose. Depends how its orbit's degrading. Depends how much, like, battery it has. Battery. Depends how much, like, life it has left. And I don't know. I just... Who knows? Who knew all this stuff? It's so cool. And so like, cool. Isn't, it, like, isn't Curiosity a bit like that? Where Curiosity was supposed to stop ages ago? And it's just, just still going. Yeah. One day we'll get a little broadcast from it where it's coming back somehow. It's, it's, uh, it's managed to hitch a ride. It's gone Skynet. <laughs> Are there things to learn from smashing it into the planet? I mean, it seems Not, like a bit of a... Well, you know. the reason why they're doing that, and I thought, again, this is, this is so cool. I actually spoke to a NASA scientist about this. This is how mm. I've been getting this information because I'm doing an article about it. And um, they don't want to 
have that there, there is a chance that if they leave it and just do its orbit until it dies, that it might um, hit one of the planets like Europa. Mm. I think I think Europa is the right moon. one. That's in moon, 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 not moon, moon. Um, that's Jupiter's mm. and that has actually might have liquid Li- and liquid water, which like is an indication for life. So you don't want to accidentally contaminate it. I mean, it'd be pretty unlikely that it would have microbes on it at this point, but you don't want to. You want to be sure, right? Or so give them access to our technology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, that's a good point. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> Infinity War. There's stuff on Titan. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was incredible, and the fact that this is a thing that's happening, and yeah. Also, Yay, qu- quickly on the images there, and like the the real the quick, running out of time. Really, really, really quickly. Because like I know some people will say some stuff like this. A lot of flat Earth stuff comes from this, where they go, "Oh, look, you can't get a. Just why can't they just take a picture of it? Why do you have to do all this maths to it to recombine it?" It's big. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and like real quickly, the map of Earth that you see hanging up in classrooms and stuff is also goes through similar processing. It's not. A, it's a Mercuta projection. It's not a real. There's the one. There's been one image of the whole Earth. But like, you know, the flat to get a flat image of a of a sphere oh, in a rectangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you Sorry. can't you can't do it. You have to do something to it. Uh, so like, yeah, that's why Greenland looks big, and that's why Antarctica looks more massive than it and, is. Mm. Um, Africa, Africa is looks smaller. smaller. Yeah, and all those sorts of things. Super interesting. Mm. Mm. But yeah, no. If anyone wants any questions about Juno, I like know a lot now. Mm. So um, <laughs> feel free to contact me about that. Um, What's its crust made of? Oh, sorry, no, it's Juno's the camera, damn it. What's his lens is made of? What's his lens made of? They actually, so it's got, actually, this is really cool. Damn as it. well as having, <laughs> you know, your three red, green, and blue camera, like, wavelengths that it mm. detects. It also detects methane. Yeah. So this camera can also detect methane cool. to find out how deep the um, methane gas is on the planet. That's sick. Amazing. So did the, did the image come back color, in color? Are they in color? Um, so they, they come back each. as, like, they have three different images. Each channel. With, yeah, different mm. reds, greens, and blues. So you have three different images with mm. three different colors, and then you combine them to make those beautiful images mm-hmm. that you see. Mm-hmm. You're in that reaction. We have to finish up of the last show ever. Now, I've got a little bit of a surprise for you guys. Um, I've got a little segment of old interviews that we've done in the past. I put it together on uh, last week, and I thought it would be nice to just play some of the stuff that we've done. I mean, it's a couple of interviews. It's a couple of us being stupid. <laughs> Oh dear. Just to finish it up with. Here it comes. So it's come to this. It's come to this. We're going to turn the microphones off. Clip show. And then have a uh, deep, deep cry. <laughs> um, but thanks everybody so much for being here, for listening to us week in, week out. Oh, just once, even. Yeah. Or coming on the show, any of the guests that have been here, including Frank. He's Thank been you amazing. Very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here, everyone for supporting us. And if you ever wanted to start a show, like, let me know. We've already had a couple of people who have been really, really interested. So we just want to want to spread the love. Also, this is not the first time we've gone away and come back. So, like, mm. if you want to see us back, make some noise, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> make some noise in about 12 months' time. Yeah, in about 12 months, <laughs> when we're all good. <laughs> yeah, but um, in the meantime, we're going to finish you off with this. It's been a pleasure, guys. It really has. And personally for me, it's been a tough year, but... This show has actually forced me to get interested in science again and forced me to find interesting aspects of science because but when you're working in it, you become so disillusioned that it's it's tough to... To keep your passions high. It really is. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Mm. Oh, guys, <laughs> this is amazing. This show has been incredible for all of us and I just appreciate both of you guys. You're both champions. We love you too. <laughs> Love you guys. Aww. Even if I never got around to doing the announcer course. <laughs> <laughs> You're a natural reaction. And this is us signing off. Bye, everyone. Bye. Love you too.
How, why, why is science not influencing us? Or is it? And we just don't, it's influencing us in a way that we're, we're not expecting or we don't understand. What was the answer? Uh, <laughs> well, I did write 82,000 words on it. So uh, how long have you got? Uh, <laughs> about 50 minutes. Right. Well, <laughs> page one. Uh, I brought it with me. To yeah. I didn't. Um, so there's some crazy ideas out there to actually send a virus through a t double slit experiment. And the reason why that's crazy is because it's debatable whether a virus is itself alive, but, you know, it's 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 debatable. Yes. And so then the, the status would be that you've done a quantum interference experiment with a, a living object. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is actually fascinating. <laughs> is his face just lit up in the, in the <laughs> studio here? Right. If you imagine a room full of gas, it's like having a whole stack of little billiard balls. They're all flying around. Little, like, in this case, we've got like... A lot of oxygen and nitrogen bouncing around the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that there are gajillions of them, and so you can't really keep track of them all. And they don't impede you very much when you walk through them. Yeah, you don't want to walk through a whole room of floating billiard balls. That would hurt. That that would hurt, yes. <laughs> Invisible, non-problematic, uh, non... Uh, I, I, look, I, this analogy, I can't. I can't get my head <laughs> you don't want to walk through a room of solid balls floating around the air. No, that's what I mean. I was like, they're not solid in this analogy. I don't know. It's kind of nice because my, my PhD is like the theoretical side of my practical work. And I say it to my scientists all the time. And then they get that face like, oh, Tara's made a bad dad joke. But it's like, my work is my lab. <laughs> yeah, see? Look see, at Izzy. That. If you could see Izzy's face in the studio right now, it's perfect. <laughs> but if I say it at a social science conference, they go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know how to press the right button. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so does that mean that um, most of your job is just making sure that your plants are, are still alive? After <laughs> <laughs> Actually, funny that you mentioned that. To some extent, yes, when we <laughs> study the traits, but we also care a lot uh, the way they die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the people who literally just think that they can survive on energy and air oh, and those no. kind of it's just that's insane that that kind of stuff doesn't work people it's not scientific no one can live on pure sunlight, on pure sunlight. we you're do not, not have chloroplasts <laughs> <laughs> you're not this crazy even if you eat a bunch of chloroplasts you won't be able to do it tell me a little bit so we've kind of talked a little bit about what you do in your everyday life that you don't have a lab you don't have to pipette things unlike the two of these guys that are also in the studio yeah and um, pipetting <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of it, to be honest. Uh, it's good. It's like uh, it becomes just uh, an extra appendage. Just go into <laughs> auto autopilot mode and pet everything. <laughs> just attach it to your hand so you're always there. Um, yeah. So what do you actually do in your everyday <laughs> physics life? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> so I really like doing theory. As you said, I'm not tied to a lab bench or anything like that. So I can... Um... Look at her. Her posture's all nice and stuff. <laughs> 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 Not suffering from a pet <laughs> <pain> injury. <laughs>